Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Pray with me. Father, as we come to you right now, we thank you for this passage and how amazingly, shockingly it applies to our world and our life today in the 21st century. May your spirit speak to us today for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Today's message is entitled... The greatest moment, the greatest moment. Now, you see Peter there. That's uh, one of the characters from The Chosen. And much of season three revolves around him and his time with Christ. But today we're going to look at Matthew. One of the more famous disciples was Matthew, who before he was called to be a disciple, as you know, was living as a tax collector. Not a popular job. Imagine if today... And again, just bear with me. If today we were conquered by Russia or China and your son or your daughter decided to go work for their government to force you to pay taxes, well, you might have a problem with that. How would that make you feel? What would you say to them? Which brings us to our first scene from The Chosen. Watch this. Are you? It isn't prudent to discuss this right now, Abba. We don't have first the shame of your choice. And now you're actually my collector. Matthew? What are you doing here? Your son is our Publicanus. Matthew, no! He sent a soldier to your home. I'm sorry. I didn't want you to know. I didn't choose this district. You chose this job. The Romans never forced you into it. You chose to apply. You chose to betray, chose a secure future. You were called to trust in Adonai with all your heart and not lean on your own. I have trusted. Can you name one thing Adonai has done for our people? In a hundred years? Five hundred? you. A traitor and a blasphemer. Well, you owe your government two months of tribute. I will bring in a payment by the end of the week. You've missed two payments. I was hoping Lucius could convince you, but I will no longer protect you. I don't want your protection. Then you have 24 hours, Abba. Don't call me, Abba. Please, please. What? Ellie, cover the windows. Put on your veil. We will sit Shiva for seven days. No son.
Now, your parents may disagree with you, but um, if they come to the point to where they completely disown you, you know your relationship has fallen. According to Wikipedia, in 1915, swarms of locusts stripped more of Israel, or most of Israel, Mount Lebanon, and Syria of almost all of its vegetation. This infestation seriously compromised the already depleted food supply of that year in that region and sharpened the misery of everyone in Israel. Historian Zachary Foster argues that the scale of the attack was far worse than anything the region had witnessed in many decades, if not centuries. A huge percentage of the food supply was completely wiped out, including fruits, vegetables, and grain. It was all devoured by the locusts. He says, the attack completely wrecked the 1915 harvests in ranges varying from 60 to 100%, depending on the crop. The destruction of locusts is in many ways similar to the dark things of this world, especially now in the 21st century. This is really a unique time in the history of mankind. Because of the internet alone, people are now able to hate lust, deceive, and plot evil on a scale never before seen in history. There are literally thousands of hate groups online. Terrorists are able to communicate and plot through the internet how they can most effectively kill men, women, and children. According to Wikipedia, there are now 25 million pornographic websites. 25 million websites. Social media has become accessible for gossip, complaining, and hatred for every group and every age across the globe. We have become united in our dissatisfaction of each other. Like a plague of locusts, many people have been swarmed by sin, overcome by temptation, and it has destroyed their lives. But many others are swarmed by other difficulty, and you may feel that way this morning, not always of their own doing, poor health or bad finances or discouragement and a sense of hopelessness in their life. The lives of so many have been bombarded by violent news stories, horrifying world events, and threats of impending disaster. Many others have been swarmed by a plague of bad habits and addictions that have taken over their life. Many wonder why they should keep trying. If anyone here feels that way today, or if you're watching today and you feel that way, then this is the place to be because we worship the God who restores. It's the place you should be. Last week, we looked at scriptures that tell us, and if you didn't, uh, if you weren't here last week, you didn't get a chance to watch online, go back and watch this, not during the sermon now, but later on, go back and watch it. We look at what the Bible had to say that in God's eyes, you are wonderful. You may not feel wonderful. Your parents or family or friends or kids may not call you wonderful, but in God's eyes, you're wonderful. You are his workmanship. You are also chosen. We saw that list last week, and we'll see that again today. And you were created to be a child of God. Whether you choose to be that way is another matter. And again, we looked at that last week, and we'll see it today. But you were chosen by God to be his child. So you may ask, 
If I'm wonderful and I'm chosen, why do I feel so discouraged? Why do I feel so beat down in my life? Why do I feel trapped or stuck in life? Why am I hurting so much of the time? Why don't I have much hope for the future? On a larger scale, our nation is in deep trouble. Now, I don't, I don't like to be the doom and gloom guy. So I'm not really telling you this to be the doom and gloom guy. I'm telling you it because it's true. Our nation is in deep trouble. We are rapidly renouncing our faith, betraying our values, and denying our God in record numbers. Now, I don't want to be negative again, but if we look seriously at the moral and spiritual decline of our nation, it is absurd to think that God will continue to bless us on this path. I don't care who you are, what side of the aisle you're on politically, your great-grandparents, your great-great-grandparents, if they were sitting beside you today and they saw all that was going on in our nation, they would be shocked. I mean, just shocked. We've kind of gotten used to it. But it is shocking what has happened in our world. We don't know much about the backstory for the disciples. And I always say this, and I'll give you this little disclaimer at the beginning. The Chosen series is a video series. It's not scripture. They don't present it as scripture. It is about the Bible, and it is about Jesus, and it is about the disciples, and they do their best to keep a scriptural tone. But we don't know all the backstory about the disciples, and so they have to take what's in scripture and then extrapolate what they think the disciples may have been going through. And it gives us an interesting perspective into the lives of the kind of guys that the disciples may have been and the challenges that they had to have faced in their lives. Matthew is one of the more famous disciples, which is ironic because he's almost, did you know this? He's almost never mentioned in the New Testament. Aside from being mentioned in a list, these are the disciples and his name is in that list. We see that in Mark and Luke and once in Acts chapter 1. The only story, other than those lists, the only story that we have of Matthew is what I just read when Jesus called him to be his disciple. Did you know that? In fact, only in Matthew is he called Matthew. In Mark and Luke, he's referred to as who? Levi. They call him Levi. And in John, John never mentions him at all. The entire Gospel of John, and he's never mentioned. And we never hear his name again after Acts chapter 1. Isn't that interesting? Uh, so why is he so popular? Why do we know Matthew so well? Well, he wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And while we don't have him by name or stories about him specifically, we know he was with the disciples when they went through all the things they went through. And we get to hear his heart and his perspective throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And so we, we in many ways understand him better than most of the other disciples. In the scene you just saw, Matthew was disowned by his father. While we don't know that that happened, I'd say that's a pretty good guess. It was probably likely because to be a tax collector for the Romans was a betrayal of the Jewish people. His family must have been humiliated. In a similar way, our nation has betrayed God. If you don't believe me, just watch one episode of The View and you'll be convinced. So today, I want to focus on two important truths from this passage, and they're both good news. Number one, God loves sinful people. If you're a sinner, 
got good news, and you are. God loves sinful people. Matthew was a tax... Uh, by the way, before I get to that, Romans 5.8 says it this way. Not only the passage that I just read to you, but Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I love this. It not only says that God loves us, which he does, but he says that God demonstrates his love for us. And how did he do that? After we got our life together, after we nearly got perfect, after we were refined and at a position where we should be, uh, God sent Christ for us. No, that's not what it says. It says while we are still sinners, when we were at our worst in life, God sent Christ to die for us. That's how much he loves us. Matthew was a tax collector, and the passage I read at the beginning is also a scene in a previous season of The Chosen. You can go back in previous uh, years of that and look at that scene, which is really great, the calling of Matthew, one of my favorite scenes and favorite for a lot of people. But today I want to focus on the claim of the religious leaders and their confusion as to why Jesus would spend his time with sinful people. When I read that passage, and it's in three of the four Gospels, John doesn't mention it, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention that same scene. And uh, it says that Jesus went to eat with Matthew, and there were other tax collectors there and other people called sinners. Now, tax collectors were so bad, they got their own group. Tax collectors. Now, so they're, they're even worse than adulterers and uh, demon-possessed people and prostitutes. They got their own special group. But sinners included everybody else. Now, the Pharisees didn't eat with those people. Their attitude was, you get your life straight. You become an upstanding citizen of the community. You get a good reputation. You, you come to synagogue every Saturday uh, for years. And maybe, maybe after you do all of those things, then we'll spend time to you. We might even be willing to go to your house if you're lucky. What did Jesus do? He got the worst among them, went straight, went straight and had a party. <laughs> and so I love that about Jesus. That's his character. That's who he was. So I want to focus on their claim and what they said to the disciples. They didn't say it to Jesus. They said it to the disciples. The religious leaders said, why does Jesus eat with sinners and toxicals? They had no idea. They were, they were befuddled. Why would he do that? That's crazy thinking. You don't, you don't have anything to do with sinners. Of course, Jesus was eating with some pretty shady characters. And the truth is, we're all pretty shady characters in God's eyes. We're sinful people. Jesus knew that, but strangely enough, the Pharisees didn't get that. In fact, there are only two kinds of people in this world. People that acknowledge that they're sinners and people who don't acknowledge that they're sinners. But they're all sinners. Some people own it. Some people don't. And Jesus was willing to eat with those who knew it. In fact, he said to the Pharisees, do you remember what he said? He said, doctor comes for the, for the sick people, not the well people. I'm here for the sinners. What he really meant was, I'm here for those people who acknowledge that they're sinners. It is the first step in our relationship with Jesus Christ. God loves sinners. Jesus loves sinners. How about you? What kind of sinner are you? Now, I'm not real fond of the ideal in my own life. I prefer to think of myself as a saint, not a sinner. 
but my Bible and my wife tell me otherwise. <laughs> I went to the doctor last week, speaking of denial. Part of me thinks that doctors are alarmists. They'll never say to you, you're fine, come back in 20 years. Never. <laughs> They'll never say that. Usually they say something more like, you could die any second. You're a ticking time bomb. Here, take these pills. Get this prescription. Uh, uh, get, we'll get some blood from you. We've got to do all these tests. And, and you've got to stop eating all those foods that taste delicious. In fact, stop eating any food that has any taste to it at all. You've got to get rid of that salt. Don't, don't dare drink that sweet tea at Chicken Express. That's the devil. And you can't have the fried chicken either. Here's all these pills. Run 100 miles a day and I'll see you three, in three weeks and we'll take a bunch more tests then. That's what they usually say. I prefer living in denial. Well, I'm not that bad. Uh, I can always find people that are less healthy than me. And so can you. So we like to live in denial. As I said last week, God has big plans for you. You know, you may not have big plans for you, but believe it or not, God has big plans for you. He loves you completely. But to accomplish his purpose in your life, the sin and the brokenness in your life has to be dealt with. And he will never do that unless we admit who we are. That's why he could not reach the Pharisees. We mess up, we make bad decisions in our life. Sometimes we do things, say things, and think things that we should not do or say or think. The Bible calls that sin. And left alone, our sin devours us like a plague, a swarm of locusts. But God still loves you. So God loves sinful people because that's the only kind of people there are. <laughs> Number two, God can restore anybody. God can restore anybody. Before we turn to this passage in Acts, I mean that literally. There is not one person in our prison there in Fort Worth or any other prison in our nation or world, there's not one prisoner anywhere that God can't restore their life. There is not, shocking, there's not one politician in our country that God cannot restore them. Amen. Some it'll be easier than others, but God can do that. And as hard as it is to say, he, for whatever reason, he loves them just as much as he loves us. God loves everybody. He doesn't want anybody to perish, the Bible says. Even politicians. And believe it or not, the people of North Korea, the people of China, and the government of China, and the government of Russia, God loves them too. Because if he doesn't love them, he doesn't love you and me either. Because we're all sinners in need of a savior. God can restore anybody. Acts chapter 3 verse 19 says it this way. Repent then and turn to God. So that your sins may be, and I love this, your sins may be wiped out. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. 
I told you a week or two ago about Psalm 23 that David had shared from the perspective of a sheep about God as his shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then he talks about the physical provision of the shepherd. He causes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He goes on to say that he protects him, that your rod and your staff, they comfort me and that God anoints him. And he talks about all of these physical provisions of God the Father. But there's one statement in there that just doesn't apply to sheep. He says, he restores my soul. That doesn't apply to sheep because sheep have no souls. David understood that as a sheep. There was a difference between a sheep and a shepherd and God and David or you and me. And the difference is we can have all the physical provision in our life. I can look out and see that you're pretty well fed and watered. <laughs> you're doing okay. Probably had a roof over your head last night. You're all wearing clothes. Thank you for that. And so God's taking care of your physical needs. But spiritually, we need restoration in our soul. He restores my soul, David said. And let me tell you, David knew what it was like to need restoration in his life. People like sheep need a shepherd. And all of the other provisions in our life mean nothing if spiritually we are bankrupt, hollow, and in a pit. Heard a story about two guys that were walking through the woods and they came across a pit in the woods. It was a sinkhole or something. It was a great big pit. And so one of them took some gravel, uh, some little pebbles, and he threw it in the pit to see how deep it was. And they got real quiet and they listened and there was nothing. Well, that piqued their interest. So they looked around and they found the biggest stones they could find that, that they could lift. And they lifted them up and hurled them in and they listened. Nothing. And that, wow, that is a deep pit. So they started scrambling to find something that they knew would hit the bottom and they would be able to hear it. So they looked around in the woods and they found an old railroad tie that was about eight or 10 feet long. It was so heavy, both of them together could just barely drag it to the hole. They finally got that big heavy railroad tie to the hole and they pushed it in and down it went and they listened and then nothing. A few moments later, they turned around, they heard some noise in the bushes behind them, and they turned around and they saw a sheep there in the middle of the woods, and that sheep was running right at them. I mean, just full on as fast as that sheep could run, and before they knew it, the sheep ran right by them, jumped up in the air, and jumped in the hole, and disappeared from sight. <laughs> they were scratching their head trying to figure that one out. And a few minutes later, a farmer came along and he says, I, I'm looking for my sheep. I can't find my sheep. Have you seen a sheep out here? And one of the guys says, uh, well, yeah, uh, you won't believe this. For a few minutes ago, he ran right by us, jumped up in the air and jumped in that pit right there. The farmer said, well, that's not my sheep. My, my sheep was chained to a railroad tie. <laughs> Now, here's the moral of that little parable. You and I are the sheep, and we find ourselves in a deep pit, chained down, and we cannot get out. 
David says it like this in Psalm 103, because he knew what it was like to be in the pit. He says, God redeems my life from the pit and crowns me with loving compassion. He knew what it was like to be in the pit. Whether he jumped in, fell in, or was pulled in, he knew what it felt like. Sometimes the enemy was after him and he was afraid for his life. Sometimes it was his own sin. As you know, he committed murder and adultery. And he found himself in a pit and he needed God to redeem him out of that pit. And that's why he says, he redeemed my life from the pit. I can tell you this. That was one of the greatest moments in David's life. No, that's not true. I can tell you the moment that God redeemed him from the pit, that was the greatest moment of his life. Without God, our lives and our nation is in a pit. And only Jesus can get us out. Now back to Matthew. He left his life a betrayal when he followed Jesus. He accepted the call. When Jesus chose him. Which means that once he began to follow Jesus, he never taxed anybody a penny again his entire life. That part of his life was over. And it needed to end. He knew it. Christ restored him, forgave him, pulled him out of his pit. That was no doubt the greatest moment in Matthew's life. Now, after he had that redemption, that forgiveness, and he followed Jesus, left that old life behind, makes you wonder, what conversation might have taken place between his parents and himself once he had been redeemed? Knowing that he had renounced his betrayal and was now a disciple of Jesus, what would they have said to one another Maybe it was something like this. Watch this. This is good, thank you. Not really. Our current batch isn't very good. I've been traveling and I haven't had good wine, so this is fine. How were your travels? We'd love to hear more about them. They were good, thank you. Are you sure? You've lost weight. 
Have you been eating enough? Um, I used to eat too much. No, you didn't. You looked healthy when I saw you. I hope... Ellie, you said it was good. I like your beard. Mm, thank you. How did you handle sleeping outside? I'm better at it now. I'm proficient at making a tent, and I've also learned how to strip bark for dry wood. Philip is my friend. You have a friend? Yesterday my rabbi said that every time we pray to God, we must ask him to forgive us our debts. And I recognize that I owe quite a debt to you. Matthew. You don't owe us any money. That isn't material. Yeah. I hurt you. And I hurt our community. And, and my rabbi also said that before we lay a sacrifice at the altar, if we know a brother has an offense against us, we should leave the sacrifice there and go be reconciled. Uh, of course, only priests lay gifts at the altar, and, and, and you are not my brother. But uh, this example is in many ways a metaphor, which I'm learning. And yes, Matthew, we get it. Move on. I never understood why I was so different from everyone else. I, I just wanted a comfortable life. You wanted to be better than everybody. Yes. No. You're right. And I loved affluence because of it. I was comfortable behind bars in a boot and the armed escort behind the gold door. All the while you were scorned at synagogue. You lost your reputation and friends. I shamed our family. I turned my back on our people and I believed the choices I made were better for me and more important than my family and faith. That was selfish, which is wrong. I, I, I didn't understand that then, but, but I do now, and I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I wish I could take back the harm I caused you. I, uh, All right, all right. I, I will search for something I can do to atone. Matthew, sit down. I prefer to stand. Please. I don't deserve the courtesy. You're not the only one who must atone. Are you hungry? I lost my business because of you. And you are correct. We lost our reputations and friends. I know. But I had no right to reject you as my son. God should strike me down for the things I said to you. I was shameful. Can you forgive me? I only made things worse. I'm sorry.
We're sorry. But what, but what has changed? I sinned. We saw him too, Matthew. We heard his sermon. He's the teacher you're following. <laughs> yes, he called me and I... And you have already atoned. They were the most true words I've ever heard. Some of it shocking. I know, I wrote it all down. You are his scribe. Yes. <laughs> you will redeem our family's name. Matthew, he chose you. To this day, I don't know why. different from other people. And you are, you were set aside for something special. Thank you. Thank you, Ima. Say it. I forgive you, son. Thank you. Thank you, Abba. Thank you, Abba. Now listen to me, just as God redeemed Matthew, he wants to redeem you. Just as he restored him, he wants to restore us. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, that famous passage says this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, these are the words of God, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Oh, we need that. In the past 11 days, God has been moving in a revival of all places at a small Christian college in Kentucky called Asbury University. People have flown in from all over the United States to join in that revival that's ongoing. But I think God wants to restore and to revive more places than just that. Our country desperately needs God, needs restoration, needs forgiveness. Azel needs revival too. But where will that begin if not here? In whose hearts if not yours and mine? We don't need to get on a plane. We need to get on our knees. I want you to know that if you've wandered from your Savior or if you've never given your life to Christ, 
Now is your chance. Today, right now, can be the greatest moment of your life. Pray with me. Father, as we come to you today, we see, we know, we're all sinners. We're not like the Pharisees who are in denial. Deep down, we all know we mess up. We do things, we say things, and think things that just don't honor you, that separate us from you. And we find ourselves in a pit because of it. Oh, forgive us. We need you. We need a Savior. Father, for those today who have never given their life to Christ, may this be the greatest moment of their life. It can be. Jesus said that if you will confess me before others, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. And there needs to be a confession. There needs to be repentance. We need to acknowledge that we messed up and we need a Savior who paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. And our sins can be wiped out completely so that there's nothing between us and you as you restore us. Father, we pray for this nation. We need restoration. We're a mess. We need you. We can't wait another year, another month. We don't even know we have another year or another month as a nation. We need you now. So we're asking for revival. Send your spirit. As you're praying, no one's looking around. Would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to spend some time on your knees before your God, pleading for restoration, pleading for revival in this nation? Could be you need to give your life to Jesus. I challenge you to come up and say, Pastor, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to be a Christian. I need a Savior. Or maybe you just want to come up and pray. Maybe God is calling you or a family to come and join with First Baptist. You want to be a member here, just come up, come up and say, Pastor, we'd like to join. If God is leading right now, or you just want to come and pray, right now, here's your chance. As you pray, no one's looking around, would you stand? As you stand, as you pray, right now, you come.